0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 29, if you want to go ahead and mark your... Bible or your app. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark, and I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you're with us this morning. We're in a series of sermons we've entitled Relentless Pursuit. Uh, Mike talked about that a little bit earlier in the service, where we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And last week, Jason French spoke uh, while I was away and did a wonderful job talking about the names of God. When Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? He had revealed throughout history who God was, but Jesus wanted them to understand. No matter what the world said, each one of us must make a choice about who do we say Jesus is. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, uh, Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a powerful moment. It's the moment in the story that Mark tells that everything changes. It changes from Jesus revealing who he is, which had happened all the way through the first eight chapters, to now making a turn toward the city of Jerusalem where he would turn himself in to his haters and they would kill him. And the rest of these chapters, chapters 9 through 16, all deal with that turn toward the cross. That's why we've called it a relentless pursuit. Mark doesn't waste a lot of time. He doesn't tell us a lot of the parables that Jesus told or a lot of the teachings. He's taking us quickly In the immediate aftermath of Jesus' life, to that generation that witnessed him, he's taking us from the identification of Christ right into the purpose of Christ. It is a relentless pursuit. Jesus came to do nothing else. And so that's where we're at in the story. What's interesting, though, is that Mark tells us in chapter 8, verse 31, that Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That is the moment where the story changes for the disciples. They hear the word kill. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, they'd been there when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes had all taken their shot at Jesus. They all tried to expose him as a fraud or to correct his teaching. They all took those moments where they went after Jesus and Jesus rebuked them and corrected them and they have this moment that they say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah and Jesus says, now the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to turn himself in and they're going to kill me and three days later I'm going to rise and Peter can't take it. Peter rebukes Jesus. That's a a term we don't use in our culture today but that's when Peter looks at Jesus and he says, I will not let you do what you just said you're going to do. Now what's funny is, Moments before, Peter realized he was God. But in this moment, Peter decides he's going to tell God he can't do something. That's a little bit comical. It's awkward. It's like a child standing up to their, to their father and saying, I will stop you from doing that. Really? You can't. And in that moment, Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. Peter. You see, when Peter said, You are the Messiah, Jesus said, Peter, that wasn't revealed to you by your own understanding. God revealed that to you. And now Peter says, I'm going to keep you from doing what you say you're going to do. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. From one moment, the mountaintop, to the next moment, the deepest of valleys. He says, Peter, you're acting more like Satan than you are my follower. And in that moment, when all of this took place, Peter was committed to the glory of Christ, but not to the cross. Even though Jesus had been telling him all along, whether he understood it or not, Jesus was uncompromised. I came here to die, to give myself as a sacrifice, not to lord over people, but to surrender and serve. Jesus had been speaking that over and over, and Peter heard it. But Peter was committed to the glory of Christ, but he wasn't committed to the cross. And I want to call a timeout in our story. It's easy for us to do too. And as followers of Jesus, we have to be really careful we don't permit ourselves that right. To be able to say to God, I want you to bring me glory, but don't bring me a cross. That's not optional. Are we aware of that? That Jesus said, he didn't say come and be comfortable. He said come and die. Come and give up this world to gain a better thing. But we can't be committed to the glory of Christ if we're not committed to the cross of Christ. And this is a moment in which Peter is developed. Remember that Mark is writing many of the things that Peter told him were going on. In fact, even in today's uh, message, you'll understand that there's an insight that Peter gives Mark that explains one of Peter's reactions. So Peter is being reshaped by the reality of Christ, and he's been corrected. But I love the fact that Jesus isn't cruel. I mean, okay, he called him Satan, but he was saying, you're acting like Satan. If you remember the message in this series, we talked about the temptations in the wilderness. And one of the temptations, in fact, I believe all of the temptations can be summarized this way. Satan was telling Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You're already all powerful. You don't have to go through the cross. If you choose to just stay in your glory, then you are still God and everything is yours. But Jesus understood that if there was no suffering, we would suffer. So Jesus chose his suffering over ours. And the temptation in the wilderness boiled down. was: Are we willing to suffer for the kingdom of God or do we want the kingdom of God to just be about us? And in that moment, Peter's been corrected. But Jesus isn't cruel. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter. Just pause there and let that sink in. One day, he's the son of Satan. And the next day, Jesus is like, hey, let's go on a trip. Jesus isn't cruel. Jesus is inviting and welcoming, but he will correct us. He he will tell us no, and he will tell us when we're not acting like one of his. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and they led him up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. What I'd like to do is just walk through that scene, and then if you'll hang with me, I want to give you two brief points at the end of today's teaching about what we're to do with this text. It's an instrumental text. It's more important than I've ever deemed it important as I've understood it and studied it and been taught by my teachers as to what this stood for. Let's begin with the son's transformation. Six days after the great profession of faith, six days later, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, let's go up on a mountain. They were the inner circle. I don't think I understand completely what that all means. I don't know why Peter, James, and John got to go with Jesus some places that the others didn't. But I want to caution us. It's not reasonable for us to assume that because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never recorded that Jesus went away with Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and Andrew, that he didn't. It's just recorded that there were moments that he went away with Peter, James, and John. And Peter would tell Mark of that time they went to a mountain to pray. And something happened on that mountain. And those three were with him in there. In fact, they're also noted if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus is betrayed, they go with him there too. And they're there. And what's interesting is Luke and Matthew, in Luke 9 and Matthew 17, they tell the same story of, the mount, of this mountain experience that Jesus had with these three. So some of the details I'm going to give you, I'll reference Luke said or Matthew said, and that comes from Luke 9, Matthew 17. But they record, I believe it's Luke that records, that he took these three to the mountain. And the three fell asleep. Which, why did he take three? Why didn't he take all twelve? Well, don't assume because he took the three that the other nine weren't important. You can't draw that conclusion accurately. But these three were on the mountain to pray with Jesus, and they fell asleep. If you go to Mark 14, you'll see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did they do when they got in the garden with him that night as well? They fell asleep. And growing up, I thought, what a bunch of lazy slugs. Jesus is doing all the work, and they're camping out taking a nap. But Luke records for us that when they went to the mountain that night, they were grieved to the point of sorrow. And that makes sense. In other words, just nod your head for me if you can understand what I'm about to, if you can relate to what I'm sharing. Have you ever had a moment where life is so hard and you're so overwhelmed and you're so tired that all you can do, no matter what time of day it is, all you can do is sleep? Some of you are looking around moms with babies or looking at their husbands, yes. Okay, <laughs> that's not sorrow though. But have you ever had one of those days where it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and all you want to do is sleep until it's tomorrow morning hoping that you wake up from your nightmare? If you've ever had that experience, you can understand what drove these men to collapse. Remember, the conversation was, he's going to die, and they knew who would kill him. And it was overwhelming. It wasn't a sterile moment. They were so overwhelmed with sorrow that they fell asleep. And during that time, he took three of them up there. Why would he take three? Well, the Old Testament said that to witness any event and stand with legal witness before uh, the authorities, there had to be how many witnesses? Two or three. So Jesus took up these witnesses to what would take place on this mountain so that they could testify to the disciples what occurred. But I'm here to tell you, not only did the world testify to what happened, but God would testify through Moses, Elijah, and his own voice. There was testimony from earth and there was testimony from heaven what took place on that mountain. And the disciples fell asleep. And then Mark says he was transfigured. And that's all that Mark says. This is why every now and then I want to smack Mark. The word transfigured is the combination of two Greek words, which means changed form. They fell asleep and Jesus looked like Jesus. They woke up and he didn't. He looked like sunshine. He was lit up. In the Old Testament, the image of whenever God came to earth was always light. It was always bright light. And when they awaken, Jesus, it it says in different passages, in Matthew 17, his face shone like the sun. If you've ever seen the 1950s movie, The Ten Commandments, you remember that when when, uh, Charlton Heston goes up the mountain as Moses, he looks about 40 and normal. When he comes down, he looks about 95 with a flowing uh, mane of white hair, and he is as tanned as you can be. Well, they were trying to depict in the 1950s that when anybody came into the presence of God, that the radiance of God reflected off of them. It was like the best sun lamp you'd ever be under. They burned. And when Moses came off the mountain, he had to shield his face because they were also awestruck at how the presence of God had altered him. And this time Jesus appears, and he is blown up with light. And it, it so impressed the disciples that I, I want to read for you two passages from, from letters written by, uh, excuse me, John and Peter, years later, as up as many as 40 years later where they talk about this moment. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What do you think Peter's talking about? He's talking about that day he woke up from a nap and went, Oh, my God. And there he was. And then John wrote in his introduction, which he wrote probably 40 years after Mark penned his, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God. John said, I saw it. I saw a sneak peek at who he was outside of the flesh, and I'll never forget it. In Revelation, John would see Jesus in his glorified state in heaven, and listen to how he described him. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. He remembered that night, that day, on that mountaintop. He saw Jesus again, and he said, I've seen this before. This is beautiful powerful. It's light. I like how Luke records it. Luke says, when Jesus was transfigured, they became fully awake and saw his glory. Have you ever had someone turn the light on in your bedroom at 4 a.m.? For you college students, I know you're just going to bed there, but if you did go to bed that early, someone turns the light on, are you welcome to the light or do you not curse the light and love the darkness? And here they were, and all of a sudden they were awakened by this radiant light, and they realized it was Jesus. If you wonder what it's all about, I can't describe it very well, but it happens again. After the resurrection, when Jesus appears to the disciples, do you remember they couldn't recognize him except for the holes in his hands? Something transformed. Romans 12 says, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God wants to take and reshape us. And when he revealed his glory, the glory of Jesus, it took a different form. And then... Verse 4 says, Elijah and Moses were there when they woke up. I've always wondered, how did they know it was them? Did they have a little high my name is Moses tag? I have no idea. But I wonder how they knew it was him, or if the Holy Spirit said, Hey, this is exactly who you think it is. Luke nine, thirty one, Luke says, They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Remember, Peter said, I'm not going to let you do this. And he awakens that afternoon, and there's Jesus with Elijah and Moses. And what are they talking about? Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus about the fact that his death is going to accomplish all the prophecies and all the law. Do you think that was important for the three disciples as they sat there listening to this conversation going, oh my goodness, I almost stopped what God had intended from the very beginning. Why Moses and why Elijah? Moses is the rescuer of Israel. He's the one who led them out of slavery into freedom. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Why Elijah? Elijah was the one who stood up and he called down the false teachers and the false religious leaders and the false kings and queens, and he challenged them. There's only one God, and that God needs to be worshipped in all righteousness. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? And there they appear, the law and the prophets, and they're there. And I didn't realize this until one of my teachers taught me this. That if you want to look at the great age of miracles in the Old Testament, they happened in the days of Moses and in the days of Elijah. Doesn't it sound like Jesus? The great miracles that reveal God's plan to save the world. And all of this is in culmination. Here's what I want you to know. God's plans are seldom ours. We want to stop Jesus from suffering. And Jesus said, no, I came to suffer. And by my suffering, you're going to be set free like Moses set the Israelites free. And like Elijah protected the autonomy of God and the beauty of God, I'm going to do that through my suffering. And he did exactly what he said he would do. So the moral lesson for each one of us is sometimes God's going to ask us to go to our death and we're going to fight against it like Peter did. But until we're awakened to the glory of Jesus Christ, we won't understand why he's asking us to do it. And then Peter acts like Peter. It's rather cute rather than to make fun of him. I like verse 5. He says, Rabbi, it's good we were here. (laughs) Really? Jesus just exploded into the light of heaven, and you're like, it's a good day. Glad I came. Yeah, probably. One minute he's saying, I'm not going to let you go to Jerusalem. No, he's like, whoa, you're him. Uh Uh-huh. Every day we have to be reminded of the glory of Christ. And then Peter says something. I used to make fun of this. I can't anymore. He said, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. When I was younger in ministry, I thought he was going to turn it into a theme park. You know, we're going to have rides and we're going to sell corn dogs. We're going to do what people do. We're going to make this a place that, see, in those days when God appeared, you made that a holy place. You put up a temple. You built an altar. You called it Bethel, the place of God. And you would create this space. And Jesus is like, no, 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 Peter, relax. And I'll explain to you in a few moments why Peter may be more brilliant than I've ever given him credit for. But Peter sees Elijah. And Malachi in the Old Testament says that the prophet Elijah will come before the Messiah. And Peter looks at this, and you can't blame him for it. Peter's like, let's start the kingdom now. We don't have to suffer. Elijah's here. Moses is here. Why don't we just begin this now, and we'll put all this hard stuff aside. And we would all want that for Jesus. He says, so let's build shelters. And I'll explain what those mean in just a moment. But he has to remember that Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus about his death. And when Peter's at that moment, he's like, well, let's just get rid of all the hard parts of following this plan, and let's just put the plan into motion. Verse seven. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. The most important three words in that entire sentence are listen to him. Peter, there's no shortcut. Without suffering, there's no hope. Listen to him. Listen to what Moses is saying. Listen to what Elijah is saying about him. Listen to what I'm telling you he needs to do. The cloud, oh my goodness, people. The cloud would epitomize everything in the Old Testament. The cloud appeared on the mount when the Ten Commandments were given. The cloud appeared in front of the tabernacle when God was seated on the throne. Everywhere that God went, it was epitomized by a cloud. And when the cloud came down, Peter's like, oh my goodness. And then the voice said, this is my son. And then the cloud disappears and only Jesus remains. Matthew 17, 5, a bright cloud engulfed Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Matthew records this, I love this. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. I love the fact, I love the fact that these three disciples were no greater than any of us. They were human beings who struggled and were scared and who deserved to be most fearful on that mountaintop. It wasn't Peter, James, and John, it was Jesus. Jesus knew what was awaiting him as he went down that hill. And I want you to know, when he came off this mountain, he headed straight to Jerusalem. Who had the right to be scared on that mountaintop? Jesus did. Who was most frightened? The disciples. The cloud came down. The voice of God spoke. Do you know what that meant in the Old Testament? Get ready to die. Because God's presence could not be in the presence of sin. For three sinners to be on that mountaintop, when the presence of God came down, they said, we're toast, we're dead. And Jesus, our Jesus, who's not cruel, walks over and he says, get up. Nobody got up in the presence of God. You stayed on your face till he left. Jesus said, get up and don't be afraid. Mark records, and all at once they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. It's a pretty powerful statement. Do you remember what Peter said? Hey, let's put up three shelters. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. When they look up, Jesus said, get up, don't be afraid. They look up and there's only Jesus remaining. They don't need three shelters. They only need one. And I'm gonna kinda show you that I don't even think they need that. And here's why. I'd like to conclude this morning by giving you two main points. They're not new, they're as old as your faith. But we need to understand them because this is the pivot. This is the moment the story turns from us understanding Jesus to us following Jesus to his cross. It's crucial for us to hold on to this. The first point I wanna make is gonna be a theological point, it's the foundation on which we go forward. The second point is what do we do with it? So let's begin. First point is this. He's the complete revelation of glory. Now that shouldn't surprise you. You would assume he is. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus is not a junior God on internship. He's not a part of God in a man who's better than most men and has an advantage that most of us don't have. It's not what he is. The Bible says on that mountain when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 33, that Moses said to God, Show me your glory, which is funny because God warned anybody from touching that mountain. If they touched that mountain when his presence was on it, they would die. And Moses goes up the mountain by permission of God and he says to God a very bold thing Show me your glory. And God, I think God smiles at him and says, No, i would kill you. It's like I wrestle with Braden. He goes, Okay, Dad, give me your best oh, no, you don't want all of this falling on you. You don't. Because even if I just fell on you, there'd be emergency room and doctor's payments, and I would crush you. And if you made me mad enough, I'm still big enough to hurt you. I know I'm bragging about beating up a 10-year-old, but you get my point. If he wants all the glory of this, it's going to be a short battle. And Moses says to God, hey, show me your glory. And God's like, now you would explode. But I'm going to do this. In fact, one of the uh, songs I remember growing up, hymns we used to sing in the church, He's going to hide my soul in the cleft of the rock. And that's taken from this moment where God said to Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock and I'm going to pass by. I'm going to show you my back, which I'm told is a Hebrew idiom, saying I'm going to give you the slightest glimpse of an image of me. Not me, but just show you my glory, just a, just a taste of it. And he passed by, and Moses came down the mountain, and his whole countenance was changed. And he he reflected, pay attention, he reflected the glory of God. When Jesus was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, he didn't reflect God, he was God. There's a big difference between junior God on internship and the God of all creation exploding on a mountaintop where the law and the prophets said to him, that glory sacrifice for those people will fulfill everything God ever promised. So that's the theology of this. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's being. Please understand that. Jesus did not come to give you a glimpse of God. God came to give you a glimpse of himself. Second point I want to make this morning. Final point. This is the practical side of it. He is the gift of glory. If what I told you is just true, and the Mount of Transfiguration documents that with witnesses from both heaven and earth, then you need to understand the gift that he's presenting to us. When Peter says, Rabbi, let's put up three shelters, I used to laugh at that thinking Peter missed it again. But he may not have missed it. Because this moment took place during the week that's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Old Testament, that feast was designed to remind them how God took them from Egypt, took them through the wilderness, and delivered them to the Promised Land. And during that period of time, the Jews, even afterwards, were asked to leave their homes and to go live in tents outside of their city for seven days to be reminded of the moment that God moved them from slavery to life. And it was during that week that the radiance of Jesus Christ exploded and was revealed to these disciples who knew who he was, but they didn't understand who he was. And in that moment, Peter says, listen to the beauty of this. Let's put, up, let's put up tents. Let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle up here. But you have to remember, during the Feast of Tabernacle, they would live in their own tents, but they would have to go to a special tent where a sacrifice would have to be made for them. And the blood of that sacrifice would be poured over them. And a priest would serve them. And then they could go into the tabernacle and worship God. Do you see the symmetry here? What Peter's saying is, We are three sinners, and we've come in the presence of the law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, and God of all, Jesus. And Peter said, let's build a tent where we can go in and be cleansed so that we can worship. Because when Jesus said, get up, don't be afraid, everyone who'd ever come into the presence of God in this fashion feared for their lives. But because of Jesus, listen to me, Peter says, let's put up a tent for these three. And then they look up, and it's only Jesus. What we need to understand with our Western thought and our American minds is what Jesus was saying to him is, you don't need a tent. You won't need a sacrifice anymore. You won't need a priest. You need me. Get up. Don't be afraid. What would have killed you in your sin will now allow you to radiate my glory through Jesus. Remember, Moses reflected the glory of God. Jesus was the glory of God. We don't need a tent. We don't need a sacrifice. We don't need a priest. We don't need to fall on our face anymore. We can stand by the blood of Christ. What he's about to do going down that mountain and said, we don't need a tent anymore. We just need to follow him to the cross and go to the cross he calls us to. And by that blood that he calls us to, you and I can live. It's our hope. It's our only hope. You can know who Jesus is and be lost pharisees and sadducees did they knew who he was and they made up stories about him to take away his glory so they felt better about the lives they chose to live because they didn't want to change their hearts but those who fell down on their face jesus reaches down with kindness and he says get up don't be afraid let's go to the cross and by the blood and sacrifice that the prophets and the law have spoken of by all of that you will be cleansed no more tents no more priests no more sacrifice only jesus only hope only life That's a pretty good deal, eh, church? That's a pretty good deal. Yet, we don't do this enough because we make the call at the end of a morning based on what the Word of God teaches that day. This one is crystal clear. There are many of us who believe that Jesus is the glory of God, but we don't reflect his glory. And I don't mean it's because you don't try hard enough or you're not good enough or you have bad habits. Let's get ourselves out of the picture. We don't reflect the glory of Christ because we've never been cleansed by the final temple, the final sacrifice, and the final priest. Without the blood of Christ, we're lost. We will pay for our sins, we'll be punished for our sins, and Jesus Christ came As God to earth so that he could open the door that could only be opened by his blood so we could walk through clean and cleansed into the worship of our almighty God. For many of us today, we once walked through that door and were covered in the blood of Christ. We were baptized into the forgiveness of our sins to walk in newness of life, Romans 6 says. And we did that, but we are not reflecting the glory of Christ because we can even turn that journey into something about ourselves. Remember, God's ways are not our ways but his ways lead us home. And for many of us in this room, all morning long, it's just impressed upon my spirit. I need to say this. I'm not not hiding behind that, but I know it to be true. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can be the best person, the most understanding person, the most gracious person, but your sins will condemn you and I don't want that for you I want you to radiate the glory of Jesus Christ that can only be discovered when we surrender to who he is and we accept what he's done and if you want to know more about that I've got a list of people that have said to me I want to talk to somebody about this I think I understand but I don't know that I do this is not something to say yeah I'm good this is something to surrender to we know who Jesus Christ is and we know that through his suffering we no longer have to And that's the gift of a lifetime. It's the gift of God's glory. So I ask you today, do you want to keep looking for that sacrifice and tent where you can make yourself as good as possible so hopefully God might love you? Or are you looking for that place where the love of God radiates off of you? Jesus told us we're light of the world. We're the city on a hillside. We're a lamp that should not be covered up. The light of Christ is to reflect off of us so that the world understands who he is to his glory. And that only happens when we've been washed in the blood of this king and we walk with him to his cross. If you want to know more about that, this morning at the end of, in fact, right now, while I was saying, I'm going to ask the elders and any staff that are in the room this morning to go back to the back wall. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, no pressure. We're not going to make you do anything, but we're going to invite you into the journey that God's invited all of us to. And we're going to show you what that means. And if you're uncomfortable doing it in a room like this, then come out to the prayer center afterwards or give us a call this week. This is too important to keep putting off. This is life or death. This is the hope of the kingdom. I'm here to tell you, we celebrate Jesus Christ. There's no more goats and bowls and wine offerings and grain offerings. None of that matters anymore. He gave the final sacrifice so you and I could be in the presence of the glory of God and not fear dying, not fear being thrown out not fear of being crushed. And to me, that's the greatest gift any of us will ever receive. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.